Hey everyone, Big E here, and welcome to the Virginia Law for Law Enforcement Officers podcast. Uh, today's episode, we're talking about new laws from the Virginia General Assembly that are going into effect uh, July 1 this summer, um, right about now, if you're listening to the podcast just as it's coming out. And we talked last episode about a lot of different topics. We talked about uh, alcoholic beverages and the introduction law. We talked about asset forfeiture. We talked about searches of pregnant uh, prisoners and of juveniles, uh, increasing grand larceny threshold. We talked about some uh, protective order and some drug laws. Today we're going to talk about some more firearms laws, some significant changes in Virginia firearms laws and also some laws involving immigration and some laws involving investigations uh, that are gonna be significant for you. And then I also do wanna talk about a couple of highway traffic safety uh, stat, um, new laws as well. And of course, you know, we're getting into a season of the next, uh, the next special session, which is gonna be at the end of August or beginning of September. We still haven't seen what all those bills are gonna be, but we do know that there's a big agenda, that they have a big, you know, criminal justice reform agenda that they've talked about. And so we'll see what some of those bills are. We'll talk about them as they come out. And then if they actually become law, we'll sit down and really take them apart. Um, but, you know, just to, uh, if you're just listening to this podcast for the first time, welcome. It's great to have you guys here. Um, it's been, we've got some really great feedback. This is a podcast for law enforcement officers who want to do it right, who strive every day to get better, to be better, and to find new ways to strengthen and serve their communities. And it's hopefully a resource for you. I hope you guys have been finding it useful. Uh, you know, I can tell that some of the episodes are more interesting or other than others. Um, let me know what's good and what's not so good. If you like something, tell me why you like it. If you don't like it, tell me why you don't like it. I want to make it as useful as I can for you. Unfortunately, society really has not been great about providing law enforcement officers the opportunity to learn more, to uh, to improve, to give them the resources they've wanted for so long. So um, this isn't much, but it's something. Um, so yeah, today we're going to be talking about new uh, cases and so on. Um, if you have been listening to the last podcast and you like, you know, listening to it, if you've been listening on SoundCloud and that's working for you, great. Um, keep in mind, we we are up, up on Apple Podcasts now. We're also available on the Stitcher app. So if you're somebody who uses a Google phone and not an Apple phone, um, no problem. The Stitcher app is a great way to listen. If you like SoundCloud, how that's great. That's great too. Um, so uh, we're going to, to talk... To, today talk about new laws and in future episodes the next episode what i want to do is talk about the new discovery rules that are going to affect so stay tuned for that next episode we'll be talking about new discovery rules and then as we go through um, also talk about search and seizure and so on um, but i want to pick up where we left off last time and when we last talked last time we were talking about all the new statutes involving drugs we also talked about protective order statutes and we talked about the possession of a firearm while in possession, uh, while under a protective order. And that was uh, a pretty big change. It's a pretty big new procedure. It's a lot of new responsibilities for law enforcement to, you know, basically put firearms in safekeeping. There were a lot of new firearms laws that were enacted this past General Assembly. I'm not going to talk about all of them, but I do want to talk about a couple of them that I think have some significant uh, impact for local law enforcement here in Virginia. One of the big differences, one of the big uh, changes this year of the General Assembly was that it allowed localities the authority to prohibit the possession of firearms in certain places. And the law in Virginia for about 25 years or so had been that localities could not uh, enact their own firearms ordinances 
um, that the General Assembly had prohibited that from taking place. They wanted uh, only the General Assembly to be able to do that. Now, on, as of July 1 of this year, a locality can adopt an ordinance that prohibits the possession, carrying, or transportation of any firearm or ammunition or components or combination of firearms and ammunition in uh, four types of places. And I want to tell you what those are. So the first is in any building or the part thereof that is owned or used by a locality or by any authority or local government entity created or controlled by the locality for government purpose. So <clears throat> if they want to ban the carrying of firearms or carrying of ammunition in City Hall, they can do that. Um, keep in mind that in buildings that are not owned by a locality, um, but they are renting out, let's say, office space, then the ordinance shall apply only to the part of the building that is being used for the government purpose and when it's being used for that government purpose. So, for example, let's say you got a local... Uh, pretrial or probation office that is renting out a you know a building in a strip mall so they can they, they can prohibit the carrying of firearms in that office but not in the entire strip mall just because there's a state agency located in it <clears throat> the locality can also adopt an ordinance that prohibits the possession carrying of transportation of firearms in a public park that is owned or operated by the locality or by any authority or local government entity created or controlled by the locality so if the locality has a parks authority that they created and maybe it's a cooperative parks authority with you know their neighboring jurisdictions um, that that locality can ban the carrying or possession of firearms in their local parks now again it has to be a park that's owned or operated by the locality so if it's you know Shenandoah National Park that's it's still you know or it's a, a national forest those are still regulated by or it's a state park those are still regulated by the state or the federal government a locality can adopt an ordinance <clears throat> that prohibits the possession and carrying of firearms in a recreation or community center uh, that is owned or operated by the locality or by an authority created by the locality and in and this is this last one is interesting in any public street road alley or sidewalk or public right-of-way or any other place of whatever nature that's open to the public and this is a requirement, and is being used or by or is adjacent to a permitted event or an event that would otherwise require a permit. Okay, so if so again, it's not that you can ban all carrying of firearms in a public street, but if there's going to be a permitted event, then in any place that's open to the public, the locality can ban the carrying or possession of firearms um, basically during the permitted event um, if it's being used uh, by a by permitted event, even if the event isn't, doesn't have a permit, if it would require a permit. So let's say it's a spontaneous protest, for example, that's, you know, starts up or it's a protest that operates without a permit, even though it should have had a permit permit because it's taking over a park or a street or whatever. Um, they're marching down a street or they're taking over a park to do the protest. The, the county if the, or the county of the city, if they would require a permit for that, then they, then they uh, can have an ordinance that allows them to ban the carrying of firearms in that space. Um, query, of course, I mean, that creates notice issues because if a event is taking place that doesn't have a permit, that's not allowed to take place, how do they provide, how does a person know that there's an event taking place there? Obviously, it's going to be an issue. Maybe they have to post a signage. I don't know. Um, and again, if your locality doesn't have a very strict system for having permits or requiring permits, then this uh, may not apply to them anyway. Um, the ordinance can include security measures as well that are designed to prevent unauthorized access. Um, so basically what that means is, you know, they can put up metal detectors or security personnel or whatever. Of course, if they defund the police, then I guess, I don't know, they'll hire private security. Um, so uh, another big change to 
the firearm laws are going to be what's called substantial risk orders or red flag laws. And this is a very complicated, very elaborate new statutory system that the General Assembly has created. And it is, they've created it based on statutes from other states. And most significantly, I think Florida's statute was a model for this. And let me walk you through sort of the idea of what it is and then sort of explain sort of how it might impact what you do. So a substantial risk order or an emergency order, or uh, again, you know, the colloquial term I think is red flags, red flag orders, allows police and prosecutors to petition the court, your local court, to temporarily prohibit a person uh, who is judged to be a risk to themselves or others from buying or having a gun. And uh, so you have this um, emergency order and then you have the actual substantial risk order. So in that way, it's kind of like a ECO and a TDO. Uh, you have this emergency order that gets placed, in, placed quickly and then you have actually have a full TDO, which is a full hearing later. Um, the petition cannot be filled out, can't be uh, submitted to the court until law enforcement conducts an independent investigation and determines that grounds for the petition exist. And in that way, it's not like an ECO or a TDO, right? So you very rarely, I think, get involved in the actual investigation of an ECO or TDO. You might bring it to somebody's attention or, you know, a family might call you and say, you know, uh, hey, my you know son or my husband or my uncle um, is acting in such a way that he's a danger to himself and others. And then you'd bring it to a medical provider's attention. They would do the investigation. Here, law enforcement has to do the investigation. And then the petition has to be filed under oath and supported by an affidavit that describes why it is that the person is a danger to themselves or others and ought not be able to possess firearms. Um, so the emergency order, right, like the ECO version of this, um, is an ex parte order that can be issued upon a petition. And ex parte means the person doesn't get a chance to hear, just like an ECO, the person doesn't get a chance for a hearing. They don't get it. They don't have, they're not required, the court's not required to give them notice or have them come in. It's issued an emergency with just the petition of a person um, to a magistrate or a judge of Virginia court. Um, it, apply, it only lasts for 14 days. And the court has to find, or the magistrate has to find, that there is probable cause to believe that the person poses a risk of injury to themselves or to others in the near future by their possession of guns. And then, following the issuance of that order, then the circuit court has to hold a hearing before that expires, within 14 days, to decide whether the court should issue a substantial risk order to prohibit the person from buying or possessing a gun for up to six months. And the court has to do so uh, not beyond a reasonable doubt, because it's not a criminal conviction, um, but by clear and convincing evidence, which is more than preponderance of the evidence. It's a slightly higher standard. So by clear and convincing evidence that a person poses a risk of injury to themselves or others in the near future by possessing a firearm. So at this hearing, which again has to happen within 14 days uh, or less after the issuance of that emergency order, it's the Commonwealth's attorney, the Commonwealth, who presents the evidence, and they have the burden of proof. Now, the burden, they, they operate under the civil rules, and so it's a civil proceeding. Um, but during the time that the person is subject to even the emergency order, they have to surrender their concealed handgun permit, and they're disqualified from getting a concealed handgun permit. They cannot possess firearms. They can't even work for a firearms dealer. And um, how would you know if somebody had one of these orders? Well, state police apparently is going to be putting together a system so they can let you know uh, that one of these orders is in effect so that if you run a VSIN on somebody, you'll actually get this order back. 
I've made the analogy to an ECO or TDO, but in one really important way, it's not like an ECO or a TDO because the goal of an ECO or a TDO is to get somebody treatment to put them back into the position where they were before so they can rejoin society and not be a risk to themselves anymore. The goal of these orders is to simply take somebody's firearms away. It's not to get them treatment. And in fact, there is no requirement to get the mental health treatment. In addition, it's a firearm-specific order. So if you have somebody who has, you know, um, you know, a garage full of gasoline, right? It doesn't get the gasoline away. That would probably be a fire code violation too. So the fire department would take care of that. But you know what I mean? So it doesn't take away all of their weapons. It just takes away firearms. So it doesn't take away knives. It doesn't take crossbows. It doesn't take away if they have a huge, you know, tractor trailer. It doesn't take away the tractor trailer. Um, it doesn't take anywhere, any of those things that can hurt a lot of people. This is entirely a firearms focused um, statute. But if you can imagine, you, know, you sort of say some, you have somebody who, um, you know, and the, you let's say you you know them from the range or from the community or whatever, and they own a lot of firearms, and maybe they have class three firearms and whatever, um, and then all of a sudden there's just something wrong with them, right? And this happens sometimes. People have a um, you know traumatic uh, brain injury, or they have a maybe you know a tumor or some kind of um, physical ailment that causes them. Uh, to develop mental illness or develop the uh, symptoms of a mental illness, you know, paranoia, uh, lack of connection to reality. Um, they start to think the world's out to get them. And you sort of think, oh, this, guy's, this guy might actually hurt somebody. Um, that's what this order is there for, is that you can um, do an investigation and make sure, you know, go out, talk to the guy, whatever, talk to people who've talked to him, and then petition the court um, to have their um, firearms removed by order of the court. Um, and again, it's an order, it doesn't, take away their firearms forever um, but um, but it is an order that you know the, the court can set in place and again now you're stuck in a position where you have to hold those persons fire that person's firearms as well um, but this is a new statute that goes that went into effect on July 1. In addition to that um, the, the the firearms laws on school property have kind of gone back and forth the statute has not changed with respect to the law enforcement officers carrying firearms on school property. And the statute has not changed that much as far as what a private citizen can do on school property. But it does provide now that a school board cannot authorize a person to possess a firearm on school property other than the people who are expressly authorized by statute. And in particular, uh, there is no exception for special conservatives of the police of the of the uh, yeah special conservator of the peace. Excuse me. So again, if there's a you know school board that wants to arm school teachers, for example, this does not allow that. Um, while we're talking about firearms on school properties, this the General Assembly has added public, private, or religious preschools to the list of places you cannot possess a firearm, and licensed daycare centers to the list of places where you cannot possess a firearm or school property. Um, that's only, however, when the daycare centers are operating as a daycare center. So some daycare centers sometimes are operating out of, you know, um, somebody's private home, right? Firearms can be possessed at that home when the daycare center is not an operation. Um, and keep in mind that the regular exceptions to the firearm statute apply here. So um, they don't apply to people who are possessing the firearm as part of the school curriculum or activities, um, somebody who's possessing uh, a weapon as part of a school program. Um, they don't apply to law enforcement officers. Um, they don't apply to people who have the firearm uh, stored, locked away in a container in their vehicle. 
um, and it doesn't apply to somebody who has a concealed handgun permit while the person is in a motor vehicle in a parking lot, traffic circle, or other means of vehicular ingress or egress to the school. In other words, um, somebody who is um, you know, picking up their kid at the school, um, school safety officers who are authorized to carry a firearm under code, and armed security officers hired under the code, um, they do have exceptions as well. And lastly, uh, with regards to schools, there is an exception that was put into place that does allow the holder of a valid concealed handgun permit to possess a stun weapon on school property, again, while they're in a motor vehicle, parking lot, traffic circle, other means of vehicular ingress or egress to the school. Um, or if the person wants to store it in a closed container in the motor vehicle while the school's on, vehicle's on school property, that's okay too. So again, if somebody's carrying a taser, um, or a stun weapon and they are picking up their kid, they're okay if they've got a concealed carry permit um, or otherwise they can lock it in the trunk and they'd be okay too. Um, I'm going to talk about a bunch more statutes. I'm going to talk about some immigration statutes and some uh, questions, some new statutes about questioning. Um, but I have talked before and I do, I would be remiss today if I didn't remind you again about Copline. Um, we have lost so many officers to suicide in the last few years and every one of them is a tragedy. Every one of them um, is, is too many. Um, I've been to a number of officers' funerals. I've lost friends to suicide, uh, officers who served well. And, you know, looking back, knowing what I do now, would I have seen that the signs were there? You know, I don't know. That's, that's, it's hard to say, but, um, we need to look out for each other. Uh, we need to be able to, uh, talk about what we're going through with each other, and we need to be able to recognize the signs in one another. Um, so Blue Help is a great organization. Uh, you can check out, they have a lot of resources on training on mental health and um, on coping with stress and trauma as police officers. If you don't have anybody you can talk to, Copline is there for you. Uh, it is manned entirely by retired law enforcement officers. And an active or retired officer or their family can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and be assured that there's an active, trained listener on the other their side of the line. It is strictly confidential. The number is 1-800-COP-LINE. That's 1-800-267-5463. That's 1-800-267-5463. Or you can go to copline.org. Um, they also have opportunities to volunteer. So if you're, you know, somebody who's kind of, uh, you're getting ready to retire and you're looking for something to do, what a great way to give back to the community uh, who stood there with you uh, on the line uh, for throughout your career. So I do want to get back to the new statutes. Uh, we have a bunch of other ones I want to talk about before we're done for today. And uh, one of those statutes is regarding immigration status. This is actually a pretty complicated change. And so I do want to take a minute and talk about it. Um, under the new statute, which is 19.2.11.02, um, law enforcement cannot inquire into the immigration status of a victim of a crime or witnesses in the investigation of a crime. Now, that's a pretty blanket statement. But it's important to recognize that there are some significant exceptions to this. One of them is, um, so again, if you have somebody who reports they're a victim of a crime, or they're the parent or guardian of a minor victim of a crime, or they're the witness in the investigation of a crime, or the parent or guardian of a minor witness to a crime, you cannot inquire into their immigration status. Now, number one, that doesn't talk about the suspect. So the suspect is different, right? That's a different rule. You can inquire into the immigration status of a suspect. In fact, it's, you, know, you may have to, depending on the investigation. However, nothing in this section prohibits you from inquiring into the immigration status of the parent or guardian of a minor victim 
if the mind, parent or guardian themselves has been charged with or is being investigated for a crime against the minor victim, right? And it makes sense, uh, again, because that must, parent or guardian might be involved in a felony offense, you, they're the suspect. In addition to that, um, if it's necessary for the enforcement of or implementation of, um, let's say you're arresting for an offense of extortion, um, or um, you're investigating a concealed handgun permit, um, in uh, um, violation, for example, um, or a um, so you're doing a criminal history investigation for somebody who's lying on their you know criminal history form, um, then uh, then you can still inquire into someone's immigration status. Um, this does create a challenge, though, for you because unfortunately. Uh, so many perpetrators of so many crimes use people's immigration status as a weapon against them that it does create some complexity for you. You can't ask about somebody's immigration status. But of course, if the offender, let's say in a domestic violence case, is using a person, you know, the, the victim's immigration status as a way to threaten her. If you call the police, I'm going to call immigration on you. Uh, if you leave me, I'm going to take your passport and destroy it. Um, you know, that kind of thing. It, it does, I mean, you want to be able to collect that kind of information because those are the kinds of weapons that perpetrators use to prevent victims from going to the police, from leaving them, from, uh, they use their economic um, weaknesses against them to manipulate them. And so this does uh, weaken your ability to investigate. And so you're going to have to figure out how to collect that information or share that information without inquiring of the victim's immigration status um, and violating this code section. And that's unfortunate, but it's still really important information that you still want to try to collect. You know, what kinds of threats did the person make against you and that kind of stuff. Um, I, you know, I still think you really need to have that information available to the prosecutor. So um, talk to your prosecutors, talk to your victim witness advocates about how it is that you're going to be able to still successfully investigate those cases. Uh, while we're at it, you know, we talked about suspects and inquiring into suspects' immigration status. Um, it used to be, you know, so this code section that was enacted this year, um, there's actually two different code sections, but both of them now limit to felony offenses the requirements that jail officers ascertain the citizenship of any inmate taken into custody of the jail. Um, and officers in charge of correctional facilities can only inquire as the citizenship of people committed to the correctional facility in felony offenses. Um, and again, the clerk of court also, again, is only going to be collecting and sharing information about felony offenses. So a misdemeanor DUI, you're no, the jail is no longer required to collect somebody's immigration status. Um, when we talk about speaking to suspects, a really big change is this new code section 19.2390.04. And this is a bill that requires any law enforcement officer to, if practicable, make an audiovisual recording of the entirety of any custodial interrogation of a person conducted in a place of detention. And if the officer cannot make an audiovisual recording, at least make an audio recording of the entirety of the custodial interrogation. It doesn't make the recording, I mean, doesn't make the interrogation inadmissible if you don't make that recording, but the jury or the court shall weigh the fact that there is no recording against you in court. Now, query whether or not a jury nowadays, if it's not recorded, won't use that against you anyway in considering whether or not your version of what the defendant said is true or not. Um, but again, uh, there has to be basically good cause to not 
audiovisual record a uh, an interview or an interrogation if a person is in custody. Um, if a person is, is in custody while being interrogated. And the good cause shall include situations, obviously, where the recording equipment fails or the recording equipment is not available for some reason or there's some kind of exigent circumstance that prevents the recording of the custodial interrogation. And you have to keep that recording until the person is either acquitted or the charges are otherwise dismissed or the person is convicted or the person is adjudicated delinquent. Um, so basically until the case is over in some way or another where the, the charge can no longer be brought. So if you have somebody in custody and you interview them and the charges never get resolved, you know, they don't get resolved for 20, 30, 40 years, this statute requires you to continue to hold that um, uh, that statute, that, that hold, hold that recording. If the case is, um, is null prost, uh, you need to talk to your prosecutor because a simple null process charge can be brought back. And so you would still technically have to keep that recording, I think. Um, with respect to juveniles, um, if you're conducting a custodial interrogation of a juvenile, a new statute that goes that went into effect on July 1 requires you to uh, contact the um, parent or guardian or legal custodian um, and notify them of the child's arrest and have and let the child have contact with his parent, guardian, or legal custodian um, before you conduct a custodial interrogation of that juvenile. Now you can do it in person, they can do it in person, they can do it electronically, they can do it by phone or by video conference. Um, there are some exceptions here. Obviously, you know, a lot of times the parent or guardian or legal custodian is a co-defendant or in fact is actually committed, has actually the perpetrator of the crime against the child or a crime against the child. In those situations, you don't have to notify the parent. You know, you're arresting a child and the child says, well, you know, um, I wouldn't have done this if, you know, my father hadn't threatened to rape me again or something. And you say, what? Are we talking about like your father raped you? Yeah. I mean, you don't have to call the father and say, hey, I'm about to talk to your kid about this crime that you perpetrated against him. Um, but um, if you make efforts to comply with these, you know, and you cannot locate the parents, which happens all the time, obviously, um, if you've made a reasonable effort and you cannot locate them, then that's an exception. Um, or if you need to proceed to protect life, limb, or property from imminent danger, and your questions are those are limited to those reasonably necessary to get the information you need to prevent the danger, then that's an exception as well. And notice again, this only applies, the recording requirement only applies, and the um, uh, juvenile requirement only applies if the person's in custodial interrogation. Now, custodial interrogation can include, I'm in handcuffs in the back of a police car, or I'm in handcuffs sitting on the ground outside of a police car. Um, so that can still be custodial interrogation. It's not necessarily inside the police building. But in the code section regarding the audiovisual recording, that does only apply when a person is at a place of detention. So, um, a you know, it doesn't define what a place of detention is. Um, I doubt that the backseat of your police car is going to be a place of detention. Side of the road is definitely not a place of detention, I think, well, unless your court disagrees. but um, And so your court's going to have to, you know, sort of figure out what place of detention is. Um, but certainly the police department would be a place of detention. And so you definitely need to audiovisual record that. But juvenile offenders, this applies to any situation where you have a juvenile in custody. But remember, custody is not the same thing as being detained. You might be briefly detained uh, in a you know in a Terry stop, and that is not custody under the Fourth Amendment. And we'll review that again later on, talking about that later on, and that therefore doesn't require you to have the to do the parental notification.
A couple more statutes I want to cover, and then we're done for the day. Um, one is a huge change with regards to community the collection of data, and this is the Community Policing Act. This is a bunch of different code sections, but essentially requires that every single time a law enforcement officer, including state police, stop a driver of a motor vehicle, the officer shall collect uh, certain data based upon the officer's observation or the information uh, provided to the officer by the driver. So you have to collect the race, ethnicity, age, and gender of the person stopped. You have to record the reason for the stop, the location of the stop, whether a warning, written citation, or other summons was issued, or whether a person was arrested. If it was, uh, if you gave a warning, written citation, or summons, uh, what was the warning, or what was the violation, or what was the crime charged, and whether the person or the vehicle, and whether any person or a vehicle was searched. This covers police, it covers sheriffs, this is a huge data reporting system. Um, I know that a lot of localities are trying to figure out how they're going to pay for uh, adding or implementing or creating a data reporting system, a recording system for this. Some of you already have e-ticket systems that you're getting ready to launch and it didn't have this. And so you're going to have to add this information to your e-ticket system. And that's going to cost a lot of money. Um, there is a huge, huge, huge uh, price tag attached to this. Uh, the General Assembly did not provide any money for any of that. So uh, that's a huge issue right now that I know a lot of people are struggling with. I have heard uh, that the special session may address the money issue. I would be, I would not put money on the General Assembly uh, feeling charitable about providing the money because there isn't any more money in the budget. We have less money than we ever did. I think we're $2 billion short for, shortfall or something was in the media reported a couple months ago. So uh, I don't know where the money's going to come from, uh, whether that makes them pull back on that. I, we'll see. Um, and lastly, a couple more things. If you're listening to this podcast now in your car and you're listening to it in your phone, put your phone down. Uh, as of July 1, it's unlawful a person in the highway to drive the motor vehicle to hold a handheld permission, uh, communications device. It doesn't apply to operators of emergency vehicles if you're engaged in the performance of your duties, right? But if you're just driving around, right now, if you're responding to a call and you're going code three, yeah, you can hold your phone, but you probably shouldn't listen to my podcast while you're responding to code three. If you're just sitting there eating a sandwich or on a break or just driving around, um, then it doesn't apply to you while you're engaged in the performance of your official duties. But it, you probably listen to this. I don't know. Is you listening to this podcast part of your official duties? Mm, talk to you with your sergeant. It doesn't apply to you if you're parked or you're stopped. So if you're stopped at a stoplight, then, hey, you're good to go. You can use your personal communication device. When you start moving, put the phone down. It doesn't apply to a person using a handheld personal communications device to report an emergency. So you can call 911. Uh, it doesn't require to amateur or citizens band radio. And it doesn't apply to the operator of a DOT vehicle, blah, blah, blah. You don't care about DOT. We're not going to cover that. A violation is a traffic safety offense. Um, but an emergency vehicle does include law enforcement vehicles. So you are covered in that. Um, as long as you are, uh, again, engaged in the performance of your official duties. Uh, reckless driving, the speed limit, um, now it is, it is reckless driving to not to drive over 85 miles per hour, so not 80. So let's say if you're on a highway in Virginia and the speed limit is 70 uh, and you're going 81 miles an hour, that's not reckless driving anymore. If you're going 85 miles an hour, excuse me, 86 miles an hour, uh, 86 miles an hour is reckless driving. But keep in mind, it's still per se to drive 20 miles per hour over the speed limit. So if it's the speed limit is 60, uh, 60 miles an hour and you're going 81, that's still reckless driving. Um, and lastly, a little change, but a big change in some ways, is that after July 1, 
um, prosecutions of people whose license, who are driving on licenses that were revoked DUI-related, those prosecutions now only can take place if a person's driving on a highway. And this gets into the whole definition of what's a highway and not what's not a highway. Is it open to the public or not open to the public? Um, you should know in your jurisdiction sort of the major areas what's a highway and not what's not a highway. There are some places that are um, that are not state roads that are still considered to be highways because they're open to the public and people commonly travel on them. Um, so if you think about a shopping mall, if you have a shopping mall in your jurisdiction, there are probably parts of the shopping mall that are open to the public that people just drive through all the time. And there are parts of the shopping mall that are not open to the public, like a delivery area in the back. And that delivery area in the back is not a public highway. Um, and that has some important informations for like refusal and so on. Um, and it does for this code section as well. So a person could drive without a license um, on, a, on a road that doesn't, that's not a public highway and not violate the law. But if they're driving on a public highway on a license that's revoked DUI related, then they are violating the statute as before. So that's what I got for today. Um, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Uh, next time we're going to talk about the new discovery rules, which are going to be a huge, huge, huge change as well. They went into effect on July 1 as well, and I think it's important that you guys know what those rules are. So that's all from me. That's all from Big E. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Stay safe and don't get captured. <laughs>